1: Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, written by Martin Luther, German reformer. And our God is a mighty fortress. And from that mighty fortress has come a great salvation. And the bulwark of the reformation, the doctrine that Luther and the other reformers taught, rested on three great pillars. By faith alone, by grace alone, by scripture alone, those three by faith alone we are justified we stand right before God because of our faith alone apart from our works and our salvation in its entirety comes to us by grace alone as a gift from God and the authority the right we have to say these kinds of things comes from scripture alone those three pillars now I have a goal this morning actually two goals my goal is that you may know the greatness of your salvation And specifically that you may know how humbling your salvation is to you personally in that all boasting is excluded and secondly that you may know what kind of security comes to you because it is excluded that there's not a a thread of your own self-effort that's woven into the garment which will cover you on judgment day and therefore you don't have to be on the treadmill of good works day after day trying to work it out and earn your salvation trying to just do enough good works to cover your sin. You're free. If the Son will make you free, you'll be truly free, free from that. My yoke is easy, said Jesus, Jesus, and my burden is light. So that's my desire. Humility and security for you. For both of these come out of the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works. Listen to Romans 3:27 through 31. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, it's amazing how much turns on proper translation of Scripture. You know, none of us speaks Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, so we rely on translators, don't we? You have various translations in front of you. I may be wrong. There may be a Greek scholar in our midst who looked down to the Greek text when I was just reading, but most of us don't have access to that, and so we rely on translations. For most of the history of the Roman Catholic Church, the scripture was the Latin Vulgate, and it was a translation, it was a Latin translation. And it's amazing how much can turn on a proper or perhaps improper translation. Because back in the Middle Ages, when somebody like Martin Luther felt convicted of their sin, felt guilty before God, they would go to a priest and the priest would tell them what to do. And the priest, going back himself to the scripture, looked to a specific scripture, Matthew 4:17 in particular, in which Jesus began his preaching ministry and said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very important, the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The problem was with the translation. The translation literally said, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is there a difference between repent and do penance? Well, there was in the Catholic system because what that meant is you needed to get busy. If you felt guilty, if you felt that God disapproved of you, if you felt evil and sinful and unclean before God and you were afraid and in fear of your mortal soul, you needed to get busy. You needed to start praying. You needed to go on a pilgrimage. You needed to start giving more of your money to the church. You needed to get busy. And Martin Luther was on that treadmill, working on it, working on it, working on it, but he couldn't get rid of the guilt until he started studying and realized, you know, the new. The New Testament was written not in Latin, but in Greek. And the Greek actually said, change your mind, change your thinking, repent. And he wrote to his father confessor and he said, I think it's much safer to understand the change of mind and heart in the Greek rather than the action and the doing of the Latin. And that began the Reformation, the understanding of by faith alone. Now, Luther made some mistakes in his life, and he made a mistake right here in this passage. For when he came to verse 28 and translated it into the German, he said, I'll translate it into the English, it says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith alone, apart from observing the law. What do you notice as you look down at the Bible? The word alone isn't there, but Luther put it in there. Now, he was right doctrinally, but wrong procedurally. He should never mess with the Word of God. Don't even add a single word, even if it's right. If it's not in the original, don't put it in there. But he was right. For we are justified by faith alone, apart from works. Now, where did he get that alone that he put in there? Where did it come from? Well, it comes from this text, verse 28, and also Romans 4, 5. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith will be credited to him as righteousness. It's a right doctrine by faith alone. And he wanted to teach it, and it was the foundation of his doctrine. Now let's get our bearings as we try to understand where we are. This passage that we're looking at this morning is a transitional paragraph from the great doctrinal themes we've been talking about recently on into chapter 4. Now as you remember Romans 1 and 2 and 3 are written to convince us of our need for a savior. To convince us that we need salvation. Do we naturally need that kind of convincing? Well of course we do. We think we're just fine. We think we're acceptable before God, and so we need to be convicted of our sin. And so God's Word does precisely that. And so in Romans chapter 1, he talks about Gentiles who exchange the glory of God for an idol, something they make with their own hands. They do not give thanks to God. They don't glorify him as God, though evidence of his existence is around them every day. And so they make idols. They exchange the glory of God. They take the, the sun out of the solar the system, the center of the sorry. That's what you get for wearing these things. If you go like this, it statics on you. They took the sun out of the center of the solar system and moved it away and put a, a planet, something that was meant to go around that sun, back in the center, and everything flew apart. That was the, that was the Gentiles. Then in chapter 2, he takes on the Jews who did the same thing. They exchanged the glory of God for something else, and they demonstrated it by the fact that they did not obey the law. They dishonored God by disobeying the law, and so Paul sums it all up in Romans 3. When he says, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, have sinned and lack the glory of God. We don't have the glory of God. We lack it. And so we need a Savior. The last three times we talked about the cross of Jesus Christ and how it provides an answer to the great problems that we saw. For in Romans chapter 3 it says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not one. That's all of us. We all need a Savior. And so at the, what I call the glowing center of the gospel, Romans 3, 21 through 26, we see erected the cross of Jesus Christ and how it answers our deepest needs. We took three weeks to look at it. We had justification that God, by the cross, by the blood of Jesus, declares us righteous, free forever from the guilt of our sin. He cancels that written code against us. He cancels our sin. And so we're free, we're, we're guiltless before God by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. And then the second time, the second week, we talked about propitiation. The way that God had absorbed, that Jesus had absorbed the wrath of God as our substitute. He drank the cup of our wrath. Remember that God is a passionate being and he loves passionately. But he also is passionately involved with evil. He's angry about it, it creates wrath. And so we who are sinners are under the wrath of God. Naturally, Jesus drank the cup of our wrath to the bottom. Propitiation. He's our substitute, our sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. And then last time we talked about demonstration, how God demonstrated his justice in Christ. How can it be that any of us sinners, if you really know yourself, you know yourself to be a sinner, that we have any claim to go to that beautiful, that pristine place called heaven? Are you hoping to go there when you die? Do you know what kind of place that is? It's a kind of place where the seraphs are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a holy place, a righteous place. And we are not holy, neither are we righteous. So, how could it be just to allow people like us into heaven? We declared that last time. God demonstrated justice in the death of his son Jesus Christ. By faith in him, it is just for us to be saved. Now, our access to this, as we've been saying, is by faith. We already saw it very clearly. In verse 21 but now a righteousness for god apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from god comes through faith in jesus christ by faith we are justified and he is our propitiation by faith and he is demonstration for those who are justified by faith it's faith that's a connection here now in all of chapter four he's going to talk about faith what kind of faith it is that saves it's abraham's faith Abraham's faith. And so we have a transitional paragraph here from chapter 3, the cross of Jesus Christ, on into uh, Abraham's faith. So faith will be contrasted here in our passage with works of the law. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, with Abraham and David and their works, just works in general, not works of the law at that point. And then circumcision in chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. And then faith is contrasted with law in general, verses 13 through 16. And then with sight, or an earthly existence. Uh, Verses 17 through 22, and that's where we're headed. This is the transition between those two. And so we can see characteristics of this great salvation. We already see that there's a display and a demonstration of the love of God, the love of God in Jesus Christ, dead on the cross for us. Now, we'll get more on that theme in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We saw, as we talked about, the justice of God, last week. But now there's three other aspects I think will give a more complete picture of this great salvation. We're going to see them this morning. First of all, this great salvation excludes all boasting. Justification by faith alone excludes all boasting. Secondly, it includes Gentiles and Jews alike. And third, it establishes the law. Let's look at the first of these three. Faith alone excludes boasting. Look at verse 27 and 28. Where then is boasting It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Can I say to you in all love that America is a boastful nation? We are a nation of boasters, and it's getting worse. Have you ever watched an athletic contest at pro sports without some evidence of boasting or self-promotion? Every time an athlete runs across the touchdown, the goal line, there's some kind of self-gratifying display. Every time a a basketball player makes a basket, we're supposed to honor and worship him for what he's done. He's just doing his job. I remember hearing a story about a coach, football, it was um, Paul Brown, great coach, and uh, Bob Trumpy was a rookie, and uh, he crossed the line and started to celebrate and spike the ball and all kinds of things, and Paul Brown came over to him and said, Mr. Trumpy, If you ever cross the touchdown line again in this league, please act as though you've been there before. So, I don't know what Paul Brown would think of the kind of displays and boasting arrogance that we see these days, but it's everywhere. Self-worshipping athletes. And afterwards, they'll tell you about it, won't they? They'll tell you all the things they did. They'll boast on themselves. It's ugly. Self-promotion. Also, talk show hosts. They feed on arrogance and boastfulness, don't they? The the quick put-down, the one-liner. And then they flick the switch and the collars cut off. We see it in bumper stickers as well. I may be slow, but I'm ahead of you. Have you seen that one? Well, that's a reverse kind of boasting, but at uh, least some humility in it. But I mean, you, you read most of these bumper stickers, our are, are, are pride is at the root. Boasting is at the root. And then self-promoting politicians, you can't get elected unless you promote yourself these days. It's not enough for you to just talk about what your plans are and have your record speak for yourself. You've got to promote yourself and you've got to have an ad agency that will come and do it. We are a boastful nation. And boasting is woven into who we are. Now, Paul has a tremendous concern about boasting. He's concerned about it. He actually spoke of the concept over 55 times. I count of 55. That's a big issue for Paul. The root idea of boasting is to glory in something or to put your reliance on something to glory in it, to talk about it, to speak words of praise. Now, there is some boasting in Scripture that is good. 1 Corinthians one thirty one. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what that points out to me? We were created to boast. I actually think we were. We've got a mechanism within us to honor and to be amazed at something and to and to marvel and to speak words of praise. We're made that way, aren't we? but it's not meant to be self-focused. It's meant to be focused on God and on his glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or how about this one, Galatians 6, 14. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I will boast about the cross, he says, and what it's done in my life. Last week, Paige Tillman directed our attention to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul talked there about his thorn in the flesh, some kind of physical problem he was having and God said to him my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness and therefore Paul says I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me God's grace moves out when we acknowledge weakness but when we are boastful full of ourselves there is no grace it does not come It comes to those who are poor in spirit, spiritual beggars. There are things to boast in, but not in ourselves. Now, Paul knew all about boasting in reference to himself. He was the ultimate spiritual ladder climber. He was a careerist. He was putting a career together. And his boasting fueled the whole thing. He was able to say, you know, I was trained under Gamaliel. I was getting the best Jewish training there was. And as I moved on up the ladder, I could rightly say that there was no one who did Judaism as well as I did. Well, that's boasting. Paul knew all about that. We get a little sample of it in Philippians 3, verse 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for boasting in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's that's quite a resume, Paul. Yes, and I'll tell you more if you've got time. Kind of boasting with is self-promotion and Paul says I came to count that rubbish it's nothing because I can't have that boasting and have Jesus too. can't have it both I want Jesus and so I turn away from myself I turn away from my boasting and I turn to Jesus now why does God hate boasting well let's understand the root of our problem our problem is sin well, what's the root of sin where does it come from i told you it's exchanging the glory of god for something else what is the most popular thing that's put in god's place as we remove the glory of god from the center of our life what do we tend to put in its place is it not self Isn't that what we put in its place and isn't pride a form of self-worship a form of idolatry and that tends to be the root of all evil the root of all sin i think that that was satan's sin i think that's where it all started if you look at uh, Ezekiel 28 verse 17 it speaks there I believe of Satan and says of him your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor now God has taken his splendor and his glory and and moved it out throughout creation and he had given a good measure to Satan and Satan was a glorious being and Satan got his eyes off of God whose glory far outstrips any glory you find anywhere else got his eyes off and started looking at himself and said, hey, well, what about me? I'm pretty good over here. I'm pretty glorious too. And his heart became proud. He became self-focused. And he corrupted his wisdom because of his own splendor. We get another indication of this in 1 Timothy three six, Speaking of elders, requirement for elders, it says he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So there in 1 Timothy three six. The judgment of the devil comes from his conceit, his pride, his self-worship. And I think that's where it came. And it came into into the human race through our own sin as well. Uh, Eve saw that the fruit was good for making her wise and for improving her own situation. There was a self-focus. And ultimately, that corrupted the whole human race. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10 and following talks about this. The idolatry of our pride. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols will totally disappear. Now, do you understand where we're at now? In order for us to be saved, we must be saved in such a way that there is no boasting left for us. Do you see that? Because if there's still something in which we can boast about ourselves, we have not been saved from sin. If there's anything in your salvation you can boast about in reference to yourself, well, at least I did this and the other person didn't do that. If there's anything like that, then you've not been saved. The salvation must be away from self to God so that God alone gets the glory. He speaks about the constitution of the Corinthian church, who the people were. He said, look at yourselves. Not many were, pro- not many were wise or, or, or powerful or noble or well-educated, but God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not. To nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Jesus. That's powerful. There's nothing to boast about. It's because of him that you are in Jesus. He's left us no room for boasting. Now, here in this text, he tells us that boasting is excluded. And excluded how? Not by works of the law. No, not that way. But by faith alone is boasting excluded. Faith alone excludes boasting. If you are justified by works, don't you have a ground for boasting? Won't you say, well, I did this and I did that, I did these good deeds, I gave this money to this charity, I helped this this poor person. I prayed regularly, I fasted two times a week. You can boast about yourself. Law leads to that and therefore law leads to condemnation and to death. It does not lead to freedom from pride and boasting. But faith alone does because faith is nothing to boast about. There's nothing to boast about regarding faith. I look on faith as essentially passive, that we look to God and say, give, O Lord, what you have to give to me by the word of your promise. Give it to me, God. I'm a spiritual beggar. Just give to me what you have promised. It's a conduit, a pipe in which the blessings of God come to us. And it itself, that very pipe of faith, is established as a gift of God's grace. Ephesians 2:8 and9 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. So we're freed from boasting by faith alone, if we understand faith properly. Luther put it this way, faith is not a work. The accomplishment of the fact that you believe it's not a work. Can anyone be found so foolish as to regard a promise he has received or an inheritance, He has been given as a good work on his part. What a good person I am. I just got a million dollars from my aunt who died. No, it glorifies the aunt who gave the money, not the person who received it as a gift. And faith is that way. There's no glory and no boasting in faith. It's just a conduit established from heaven to earth that we may receive his blessings. Faith alone excludes boasting. Secondly, faith alone includes Jews and Gentiles. Verse 29 and 30. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Justification by law excludes Gentiles. And since most of us are Gentiles, that means we we would have no business being here today to worship God. We were left out. We were excluded under the old covenant. Circumcision did that. The dietary laws, the fact that you could only eat certain things and not other things. The fact of worship rules and that you couldn't come into the Holy of Holies. The fact that you couldn't even come into uh, the place where the Jews could come. There were walls and boundaries set up that excluded us. There was a dividing wall between us and the Jews. And therefore there was no salvation available for us in the law. Now John Piper points out that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was basically a come-and-see religion. Now stop and think about that. There was a temple set up, wasn't there, in Jerusalem. Three times a year, all the Jews had to come and worship at that temple. Furthermore, similar to the days of King Solomon, you remember, uh, the Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to come and see Solomon's wisdom, to come and see the effect of Solomon's reign, and when she did, she praised the God of Israel who had given such a wise king to Israel. It was a come and see religion. There were things set up that you could come and observe. But the New, new Covenant, the New Testament is a go and tell religion, isn't it? It's go and tell. It's got to be portable. The religion has to be portable. Guza, who talked to us earlier, came to faith in Christ. If he were to go back to his home or go to anywhere with the gospel of the old covenant, it's no gospel at all, for the Gentiles are excluded. They must become Jews, they must be circumcised. Can you imagine going to, let's say, a Stone Age tribe in Irian Jaya with the gospel, and the circumcision battle had been lost in Acts 15, and so you do need to become a Jew in order to be saved. And so, through translators, you begin to explain about Jesus Christ and all those things, and then you get around to the regulations, and you say to this tribesman, this chieftain, uh, explain all these regulations, and he says, you want me to do what? Is that gospel portable? Is that for the Gentiles too? And I have to travel three times a year to Jerusalem? And I have to not eat this and I have to do that? No, thank you. No, there's freedom. There's freedom. Freedom from the law, freedom from its regulations. They had a purpose, but that purpose is gone. Our faith is a portable faith. It's a worldwide faith that travels around the world. God is the God of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who justifies the circumcised by faith, uncircumcised by the same faith. It's just a simple trust and faith in the gospel message as you hear. Praise God that 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 battle was won. Now, the Jews knew that there was only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they knew that the religion of the Gentiles was paganism, polytheism, different gods, a different hill had its own god, every river and stream had its own god, every country had a god. They knew that that was all falsehood. But what they forgot is that the same God who had made them also made the Gentiles and desired their salvation as well. God is the God of the entire world, and so he has set up a gospel message which is true for everybody, and we all hear it. Now, look around today. As you look around today, in America especially, I see a rising paganism, polytheism growing more and more. There's my God, and then there's your God, and you have your way to your God, and I have my way to my God. Isn't this polytheism? Isn't there only one God? And hasn't he spoken through one way of salvation, Jesus Christ? We have to be very careful about this as Baptists, as Christians. You remember recently the International Mission Board published some some prayer guides? And the guides urged us to pray for Hindus, that they come to faith in Christ, that they convert. That we pray for Jews, that they come to faith in Christ, that they convert. For Buddhists. This is so offensive these days. And why? Because we don't believe this anymore, that there is only one God and only one way to God. But the scripture testifies that it's true. You know Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India, you know what he said? He said, I am a Hindu. I am a Muslim. I am a Buddhist. I am a Christian. Pure syncretism. It doesn't make any sense. He ejected the moment he said, I am a Hindu, I am a Muslim. That was it right there. Hindus worship many, many gods. Islam, which I believe is a, is a Christian cult that twisted the true gospel because it came 600 years after the gospel was preached, believes in only one God. It's impossible to be both. But we put our minds aside and we say, well, everyone's way to God is equally valid. There is one mountain and a glorious view at the top of that mountain, and there are many paths up that one mountain. Just choose whatever path you want, and the view is as glorious at the top for everybody. That is not the Christian gospel. And it is not true. For Peter said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. This gospel of justification by faith alone is for the whole world. It's for everybody. It's not just for one category of people. And it travels well. It travels lightly simply believe turn away from your own works and trust in what jesus has done for you well people listening to this gospel message say well you're destroying the law if that's all it is just believe then you can live any way you want people have always said that about the true gospel and so our third point is that faith alone establishes the law paul says do we then nullify the law by this faith not at all rather we uphold or establish the law now, it seems to me as you read through, it may seem that Paul is constantly attacking the law. He's constantly saying you don't need the law. The law is useless. The law is worthless. Nothing could be further from the truth. What he does say is that the justification, us standing before God free of our sins, does not come that way. The other day I was trying to explain this point to my children. And uh, I said, "We, I want, I want you to understand how the law works. And an idea came to me. And we went out uh, to our basketball court. Um, and I had in my hand a basketball and a football and I said, I'm going to give you a law. I'm going to give you a rule. You need to start up here. And if you want to make progress toward the, toward the basket, you have to take the ball and bounce it on the ground repeatedly. And that way you can move your feet. It's called dribbling. But That's a law, isn't it? Isn't it a rule? All right. And then I handed the football to my son. I said, go ahead. And so he began to dribble the foot. Have you ever tried to dribble a football? What happens when you dribble a football? Well, you may get away with one dribble if you hit right on the center, right? Right in the middle, the fat part, right in the center. But anywhere else, it's going to jump away from you. Is there something wrong? Is there something wrong with the rule? No, there's something wrong with the ball. There's nothing wrong with the, with the rule. But it's not going to lead to righteousness, and it's not going to lead to straight dribbling. Jesus Christ is the only perfectly round person that's ever lived. He upheld the law perfectly moment by moment the bounce was true moment by moment he obeyed everything god called him to do and so our gospel the christian gospel is the only message on earth that truly upholds the law of god because the rest of us were all sinners we're all crooked like that football and we cannot obey that law can we no justification comes to us that way so jesus upheld the law and he did it moment by moment through perfect submission to the will of his father The Lord Jesus Christ was the only perfect man that ever lived. And he was born of a virgin, born under the law. In order that he might save those who are under the law. And he lived under the law, moment by moment. And furthermore, he died under the law, didn't he? Wasn't it the law that put him to death? Wasn't it God's holy law that put Jesus to death? Because we had transgressed his law and he absorbed the righteous requirements of that law. The penalty by dying on the cross. Jesus upheld the law. And he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it perfectly by his death on the cross. But here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. Jesus then works within a believer to fulfill the law inside us. That's why Paul says, not at all, rather we uphold the law. He's going to explain this more fully in Romans 6, 7, and 8, but I can't wait to get there. I want to tell you what God is going to do in you if you're a believer in Christ. He's gonna take you and transform you from a football to a basketball. He's gonna change you little by little so that your bounce will be truer and truer as you walk with Jesus Christ. Can God do that kind of thing in you? Can he transform you from within so that you fulfill and obey the perfect law? Not that ceremonial law that excluded Gentiles about circumcision and eating and all that, but the true law. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then the second law, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Are we to fulfill that law? Yeah, it's going to come later in Romans 13. Paul says it here, he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no, no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He will fulfill the law in us. For he says in Romans 8, verse 1 through 4, that Jesus came and died on the cross to fulfill the requirements of the law in order that, listen to this, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. When the Spirit comes in you, little by little, he enables you and transforms you so that you can obey the law. That's called sanctification. And little by little, he works it in you. We sang earlier the wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley. And in one of those lines it says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Do you realize what kind of theology is wrapped up in that sentence? He breaks the power of canceled sin. Sin. When did he cancel your sin? When you came to faith in Christ, when you were justified, your sin was canceled, wiped away. But there's still power of sin, isn't there, in your life? You feel it, don't you? You feel the pull of sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin, sets the prisoner free. Little by little, you're transformed to be more and more perfect in the image of your creator. So our gospel upholds the law and does it within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What have we seen today? First of all, that this paragraph is a transition from the glorious gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, which declares our justification, propitiation, demonstration of God's justice, all of it by faith alone. By faith alone, chapter 4, we're going to learn what that faith is. What kind of faith is it that justifies? And this explains three aspects of the gospel. Faith alone exclude, excludes boasting. Boasting has gone forever. You don't boast about your works. You don't boast about your faith. You don't boast about anything because it's all a gift. Faith alone includes Gentiles and Jews together. And thirdly, faith alone upholds the law. Now, what kind of application can we take from this? Well, I'll go back to the beginning of my sermon. I want you to have two things from your salvation, two things from the gospel. I want you to feed at them. They're good for you. Those two things are humility and security. Humility in that there is nothing that you have contributed to your salvation, to your justification, but the sin which required it. That's what we contributed, our sin. Humility, our works, mean nothing toward our justification. But however humbling that is, and it's good to be humbled before God, however humbling that is, we have total security in His love. For He has determined to save us in Christ, and He will. And if you are a child of God today, someday you're going to see him in heaven and you have security. Not because you're holding on to him so tightly with your little hands of faith, but because he is saving you and working in you, giving you total security before him. So I guess I would suggest to you that you learn how to boast. Take take boasting lessons from Paul. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Don't care anymore about those things. And I'll boast gladly in my weaknesses. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Learn how to boast. Boast in those things. Second of all, be exclusively inclusive. What do I mean by that? First of all, let's reject polytheism. There's only one God. There's not many ways to God. But that one God has a salvation plan for the whole world. No one is forgotten. There's no people or tribal language or nation that will not be represented at the great throne. So when you hear your friends saying, well, I think there's many ways to God and it's just as long as you follow your own way, speak up, tell them the truth. Jesus Christ and him alone is the way to salvation. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And then finally, uphold the law spiritually. I told you how the gospel upholds the law. Is it going on in your life? Do you see the transformation from within? Do you see yourself loving the law more and more, wanting to do what pleases God, wanting to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, wanting to love your neighbors, yourself, grieving over it if God convicts you that you have not been loving? Then the Spirit is within you doing a transforming work. So uphold the law spiritually and walk according to it. Let's close in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching